You guys ready to jump in the Bible? Good. Why don't you all open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. Open up to uh, 1 verse 22. How about we all stand? If you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. I want to read the little section, and uh, we'll read this together. And then I will pray, and then we'll get to work looking at the subject matter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 Peter writes and says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for bringing us together here. God, thank you for every single person that's here right now, that's online right now. God, we pray that you would speak to us and make your ways known to us. God, help us to walk in your ways. Your ways are a path to life. So be with us in this time right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Thanks, for, uh, thanks again for being here, guys. You know, one thing, I have a good friend of mine that kind of leads this podcast, but also a Facebook group. And he had a question on there, and it says, um, when was the last time you as a pastor said that you loved your congregation? I feel like I try to say that periodically, but I just thought, you know what? I love you guys. I really do, man. I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you are involved in small groups. I'm thankful for many of you that are involved in serving. If you're not serving, I still love you, but maybe it's an opportunity to serve. I'm just thankful for this church community. I'm thankful for those that live in Slow, that live on the Central Coast, that come and congregate here in this community, that call this place their church family. Thank, thank you for, for being here. Thankful, thank you for being you. Thank you for being a part of what God's up to here. Um, one of the things that we've been looking at here in this great epistle of Peter is a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Peter's kind of shaping our minds and our imaginations to think about what we described as a corporate culture. Um, one of the things that we use by way of an analogy is that every major like organization and culture and corporation has what we would call a corporate culture. This idea of, of how you, I mean, the larger the corporate culture, the, lo- the larger the corporation, I would say, the more of an emphasis there is upon a, an actual corporate culture. In other words, an embodiment of the values that come from the top. Uh, that begins to be lived out. And I would say that this is exactly what the Christian church operates as well. There's a corporate culture to God's people, to the church. And that's what Peter is basically highlighting. He's in sense, is essentially kind of pointing out that those that follow Jesus have moved from a culture of the world and what that looks like to begin to live into a culture of God's people, what we would call this corporate culture of the kingdom of God. And we saw essentially three things over the past couple weeks. Number one, we saw that a corporate culture of Jesus embodies these four things. Number one, hope in God. It looks like people who actually hope 
in God. Secondly, it looks like holiness in terms of your conduct, the way that you live, the way that you construct your life. It looks like holiness. Um, and then thirdly, it looks like honoring God. Or another word that we looked at last week is the word fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, which is a way of saying, I'm not going to live according to the culture of the world anymore. I'm going to live according to the culture that God invites us into. Fear of the Lord. Uh, today, we're going to finish like this little section right here looking at what we would describe as the corporate culture of God's kingdom to look at the kind of last movement of this, which we would describe as those that live according to the corporate culture of God's kingdom. They have radical love towards one another, towards all. And this is what he describes. That we, it's what we just read, that he invites people to love God. And he uses a couple different words that just in our Bibles, translations are going to just translate as love. Some of your translations might say brotherly love, which gives us a little bit of a hint in terms of the actual Greek word that's used there. Now, most of you guys know there's a couple different words in the actual Greek that get translated into the English as love. In fact, according to C.S. Lewis, there's four of them. So there's agapeo, agape, some of you might be familiar with, um, or phileo, which we get the English word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. The word eros is the third word, which we get the word erotic from, which is more of a sensual or sexual type of a love. Another one is, uh, the way C.S. Lewis describes it, is another one called storge. Uh, the three main words that get translated from love in the Bible are the first three, which is, again, eros, agape, and phileo. And what Peter does is he points out the, the two loves of phileo and agape. And he invites the people to say that if you, and as you are following Jesus, live in a way that shows forth this love of God. And so what I want to look at here this morning, um, a scholar theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem, he says this, the sense of this verse is therefore, once you have begun to grow in holiness so that you have a genuine affection to and for one another, make your love for each other earnest, deep, and strong. In other words, what he's saying is that because God has brought you into his kingdom, begin to embody the values or what we describe as that corporate culture of God's kingdom. Again, we can spend a lot of time to think about what happens when you don't embody that corporate culture. What happens if you live in a way that's inconsistent or incongruent with that culture? We have easy targets of looking at Christianity and saying it's all a joke or it's all a hoax. Or it's easy to just simply single people out and say, well, that's a hypocrite. Because there's an inconsistency. And so what Peter's suggesting is that when our lives align with that corporate value, corporate nature, corporate culture of God's kingdom, it will look like hope in God, holiness, honor, and ultimately having love for one another. What I want to do right now is I want to basically look at four elements, four movements, if you would. I think that Peter's going to identify that this love takes shape by so I'll go through these, each one, then we'll kind of circle back and look at each one, one by one. One, we're going to take a look at how this love uh, of God is ultimately, it's holiness embodied. It's what holiness ultimately looks like, which I'll come back to that. It looks like obedience practiced. In other words, if you were to ask the question, what does really truly being obedient to God look like? Well, I think what Peter would say is it looks like love. And then thirdly, it looks like God 
manifested, or this love is God manifested and then ultimately experienced or encountered. And then thirdly, we'll just kind of finish with a movement of thinking about this idea of love is beauty. Beauty ultimately will be the thing that will save the world, save humanity. And I'll circle back and explain what I mean by that, because right now you might be like, wait, what? It seems like the world is filled with a lot of ugliness and hatred and evil. And the answer to that is absolutely true. But God has something, is injected something into this world to challenge the ugliness and the chaos and the destruction of this world, which we will finally finish our thoughts on. So number one, I'm going to take a look at this idea of holiness embodied. Because this love that I think Peter is describing is, is, first of all, this. In other words, when holiness happens. So let me put it this way. If I were to ask you, what is holiness? A lot of us would tend to think of, and I think probably because of the way our minds have been shaped or conditioned based upon certain Christian cultural ways of thinking about living out the Christian life, is we tend to think of holiness as being really nothing more than personal piety. In other words, things that we avoid, things that we do, we think of growth and holiness ultimately focused on maybe reading your Bible more, maybe using less expletives, maybe spending a lot less time on TikTok or Instagram. It's like, now I'm living a holy life or not drinking a lot or whatever. I mean, fill in the blank. We have these ways of thinking about that's what holiness is. But what if the way that Peter describes holiness is something entirely different? And I wouldn't, I would say this, holiness is not anything less than personal piety. In other words, I think if you are a holy person, you will have an interest in reading your Bibles and you will have an interest of making sure that you honor other people. But I think what Peter's suggesting is that holiness, as it begins to be embodied, take shape, take form, what Peter's suggesting is actually Holiness looks like love being lived out or embodied. It takes shape. It takes form. And that's what I think what Peter wants for us to understand. That's one of the reasons why I think at the very beginning of verse 22, he says, having purified your souls. The word purified is connected to the former train of thought that he was describing with regard to holiness. And this is the big idea is that those that have been touched by Jesus moved from a former culture of this world into the culture of God's kingdom, their life will become separated to God. And that separation of their life won't look like isolation from other people. That's not what holiness is. In fact, I would even push back and say, in Jesus's day, first century, you had the scribes, Pharisees, some of the religious leaders, and that seems to be oftentimes what they were doing, is many of them were isolating from the actual culture itself. It's one of the reasons why, like, when Jesus was hanging out with sinners, and if you're watching online and you didn't pay attention, or you looked down for a second, I did air quotes. The big idea is that sinners Jesus is hanging out with people that, you know, get drunk or that are prostitutes. And the religious leaders were shocked by this. Like, why is Jesus hanging out with such horrible, immoral scum is their idea. But this is the whole point. This, that's what holiness is. Holiness is not isolation, nor is it embrace of these things. But it's learning how to actually live in the midst of decay and death and brokenness without losing your identity but somehow being able to be an agent that shows love without judgment. I mean, it's, it's a fine balance here. 
Because I think historically, a lot of times Christians have not done this well. And so what you have are some Christians assuming that they're living a holy life, but within reality, they're actually just being judgmental, condescending, rude, holier than thou. You get, you get the idea. And what I think Peter's saying is that when holiness really begins to be embodied or lived out, it looks like radical love for one another. Listen to how the verse goes on again. I'll just read a couple elements of this. Verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. So which leads me to the next thing, is that Peter then goes on to say, it looks like not only holiness embodied, but also looks like obedience practiced. Listen to how Peter says it again. By your obedience to the truth. Goes on to describe, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there's, again, in the Greek, there's two different usages of the word for that we get translated here in the English as holy. Uh, one is the word phileo, brotherly love. And here is what he says, for a sincere brotherly love. Uh, phileo, this word brotherly love, was a really important word. In the early church. In fact, I would even go so far, it's one of the key characteristics of what it meant to be a Christian. Is that in God's family, there is this family type of love which says, we are siblings. That type of love says, I'm not going to cancel you. I'm not going to shove you off to the margins. I'm not going to run away from you when the going gets rough. I'm not going to leave you when you fail. Instead, when you fail, I will press into that relationship to help you up. That's what brotherly love is. When you think of it, that's what a sibling love is like. You guys can really hurt each other. I have two daughters, and they love each other, and there's occasions where they grate on each other's nerves. And as parents, my wife and I, over the years, have had to learn to, like, try to help them, to, like, work through and navigate. Look, you are siblings. You love each other. And I would say there's occasions where they're ultimate best friends, and there's occasions where they're just at each other. But that's what brotherly love is. Christians have this mindset oftentimes that if I disagree with you or I have a disagreement with you, I need to just go to another church or leave or cancel you out. But that's not brotherly love. That's love that's more reflective of our culture. Brotherly love says, I'm with you forever. We're not going anywhere. We're going to work through this. And even if we don't end up agreeing or coming to some sort of unilateral agreement on this particular topic, we're still going to be in each other's lives. And so what Peter's suggesting here is have this type of brotherly love towards one another. And then he goes on to say, love one another earnestly with and from a pure heart. And this is where he shifts the word love from phileo to the word agape. Now, oftentimes people typically think of the word agape as the love that defines God's love. And it does because, for example, in John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's where it says God agape the world. But it's not a word that exclusively defines God's love for all humanity. It's also a word that gets translated that Jesus says, for men love darkness rather than light. It's the word agape. Men agape darkness. So it's, it's not necessarily a love that only or exclusively defines God's love towards another object or subject, but it's also a love that defines 
Human beings do love towards something. In this case, darkness. And this is what Peter's saying. Now, have this deep love towards others. Now, what does this love mean? I like to think of the word agape as basically being defined as a deeply devoted type of love or a devotional type of love, not sentimental. This is different than a sentimentality. In our culture, when we typically think of love or when it gets kind of incorporated into a song or into a media or into a show or whatever, we typically think of love as having sentimental value. In other words, having someone there to wake up next to in the morning after a night of cheap sex. Sentimental value. What I would suggest to you, the way the culture thinks of love is different than how the Bible puts forth love. The word love that's being used here in scripture is a love of deep devotional commitment. And if you think of it that way, that makes sense. Men love darkness rather than light. Men were devoted to darkness rather than light. Makes sense. God so loved the world. God so devoted himself to the world that he gave. That's exactly what the type of love of agape is. It's the type of love that says, I will give myself, devote myself entirely to you, regardless of what you give back to me. You might say it's a love that's totally others-focused, not self-focused. A lot of the love that gets sold in today's culture is actually self-focused love, even the erotic form of love which is really just a self-focused love. I will give you something, but really what I want in return is you. I want an experience that your body will afford me in the form of sex or in the form of a snuggle or in the form of just companionship or in the form of you just being present so that I don't feel alone. Any way you look at it, it's a self-focused type of love. Agape is the exact opposite. I will give myself entirely to you. And this is the type of love that we see that God putting forth. This is what Peter is saying. Have brotherly love towards one another and give yourself away in earnestness. Earnestly. He uses this way of describing it. This earnest, devoted, radical, radical form of love towards one another. Listen to how he just says, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Let me read you a couple passages, and you can just pay, write these down and pay attention to them. John chapter 13, verse 34. He goes on to say, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This is Jesus' statement on the subject of love. Listen to how Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul would have written this. The apostle, he says, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the love, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So Paul just got finished talking a little bit about the law and about organization within society at large. And he describes how in society at large, there are laws that govern society and there are enforcers and police forces that make sure that laws are followed. But what Paul then says, look, there is a law that actually transcends law of society. In other words, you don't even need policemen if you are living according to this particular law. In fact, you could actually say you can abolish the police if everyone lived according to this. If, it's important, if, if, if that if is not happening, you, you, you cannot abolish police because you need external enforcements. It raises the big question, how do you get to that new 
world where? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer here. And it's, it's Jesus working in cooperation with people that will say yes and live in compliance with God. And so what Peter's suggesting here is that as you follow Jesus, your heart will look at your neighbor and even your enemy in a different way. You will give yourself. You will love them. What happens if you don't have that? What you do have is in our culture. You have laws and you have people who don't like the laws. You have people that are transgressing the laws or breaking the laws. And you have police forces in place to try to make sure that there's order within society at large. And then you have rebellion against that order because maybe that order is not exactly the way that it could be or should be. But what you have is chaos. That is our culture. And what Paul is suggesting is that the one who loves fulfills the law. And he goes on to say, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, you shall not... All of these are summed up in this commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to their neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of... Of the law. Here's another one, First Timothy chapter one, verses three through six. Paul says this: Charge those certain people who not to teach any other different, any other teaching other than the one I have given to you. Nor devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. He goes on to say, the aim of which is the law that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. What Paul's saying is that to those whom he's spending time investing in and planting churches, he's saying that, look, there will come those that will give you certain new prescription of laws, certain new requirements. If you follow this, follow that, live according to this standard. And he says, as those become the main defining point of the culture and society around you, at some point they will take over, take the place of love that comes from a new heart. And Paul says, look, to this guy, Timothy, he instructs him, he says, make sure that you are really having your finger on the pulse and not allowing anyone to come in and bring alternate doctrines or teachings or ideas or standards or laws that are not rooted in the grace of God. Because if you do that, what will end up happening is you will have new standards. Guys, this is one of the reasons why, honestly, in the modern church today, there's so much division. You have people that are more deeply devoted to a conservative mindset as opposed to a liberal mindset, and so they divide over that. Or people that are more devoted to a liberal mindset or progressive mindset, and not one of Jesus, and they will ultimately cancel. What you have is division in the church over secondary matters. And what the whole narrative of the New Testament is to bring people back to Jesus to say, live according to this standard of love. And as you do that, you'll remap the landscape. Rather than canceling people, you'll welcome people. This is the point that he wants them to understand. I think I need to say this because I think it's important. I think in our culture right now, there are, there are narratives that are being put forth that are actually destructive and hostile to the gospel. So let me give you an example. Being devoted to... I'll just kind of say this as a precursor. This might be a little bit offensive... 
But I'm asking you to please just listen to it all the way through. Just listen to it. Being devoted to a mindset of anti-racism, wokeness, or even having a posture and an identity of being a social justice warrior, though you might accrue social status points, is not the same thing as loving one another earnestly. It's not the same thing as loving one another earnestly. Let me invert that. As you love one another earnestly, will you be devoted to sins and injustices that diminish defame and destroy other people based upon their ethnicity or gender or whatever. Yes, you will. You will fight for elevating those that have been marginalized and shoved down. You will totally fight for that because that's what love does. But just because you are devoted to an ideology of being anti-racist or woke or a social justice warrior does not mean that you will be loving to all people. There's plenty of examples of people that are deeply devoted to certain ideas and ideologies. But if someone does not agree with the full mindset of that or have a different nuance or take on that, it's one of the reasons why there's cancel culture. It's one of the reasons why there's so much hatred and anger. I was talking to someone recently who was saying that this person is not a Christian. They're saying how some of the people that they have observed that are the most virulent angry, frustrated people that are out there on the front lines fighting for social justice are people that have accrued a lot of guilt in their life and they're trying to right those wrongs by proving to the world around them that they are not part of the problem. In doing so, they're actually becoming very angry and rude and hateful and spiteful people, which all I want to simply say is the opposite of having Radical love towards all. It's the opposite. Uh, because I'm an equal opportunity offender, I want to carry this thought on even further. If you are one that ignores or minimizes the grief and the pain points of others, and maybe what's motivating that is you want to avoid conflict, or you use the modern evangelical ideas of all I want to do is just preach the gospel. I don't want to deal with other people's messes. I just want to focus. Then there is the tendency of you not loving others with a radical love as well. Because what radical love does, loving one another earnestly, it listens to. It steps into the pain points. It steps into those places where people are suffering and marginalized and feeling pain or feeling rejected. And stepping into those places, that's what love does. Love doesn't shun, it doesn't reject, it doesn't avoid conflict, it doesn't just shut people up because it feels uncomfortable for you to listen to it, nor does it just simply go out and join some sort of societal moment and at the same time enter into very strong fits of anger and rage and hatred towards quote-unquote enemy. What the type of love God portrays and Jesus invites us into is one that not only loves neighbor but also loves the enemy. Do you understand that? We're talking about an entirely different love here. You can't pigeonhole it. You can't simply somehow attribute it in saying this is conservative or this is... Pro-. No, it's totally different. This is a love that comes from God. This is the love that we need. This is the love that radically reshapes, reorients the landscape 
totally rescues us and makes us new people and then sends us into this world not to isolate from it, not to run from it, not to become like it, but to be radically different in the midst of it. This is what Peter's inviting us into. Francis Schaeffer, I think one of the most important voices over the past hundred years, said this in a book that he called The Mark of the Christian. He says, without Christians loving one another, Christ actually says the world cannot expect to listen except when we give proper answers. What he's basically suggesting is based upon what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. What he's saying is that as the world looks at Christians, they should be able to look at how they love one another, how they love their enemy, and how they love those that are different from them, and be able to trace that love all the way back up to the love of God and realize, oh, this love that they have is different than the love of left or right, conservative, progressive. It's a different kind of love. It's a love that doesn't just cancel enemies, but welcomes and loves enemies. That doesn't just simply silence the pain and the suffering of those that are hurting. It listens to, it empathizes. It suffers alongside those that are suffering. It's a radically different type of love. So thirdly, I want to take a look at this idea that this love is not only holiness embodied, it's obedience practiced. Thirdly, it's God ultimately manifested and encountered. And here's what I mean by this. Verse 23, he goes on to say, through the living and abiding word of God, all flesh is grass and all the glory like a flower of the grass that fades. And then he goes on to say, verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that is preached to you. What he's describing is that God, Jesus would say, is love. But that love gets manifested in Jesus. Manifest is just another fancy way of saying takes on flesh. God, who has no flesh, takes upon flesh in the person of Jesus. So if you want to think of it this way, everything that you can look at and see in the life of Jesus is exactly the way that God acts. You say, Jesus is really loving. That's because God is really loving. Jesus loves enemies because God loves enemies. Jesus is angry at religious people. It's probably because God is angry at religious ideologies. Jesus perfectly reflects all that God is. Theologian Karl Barth would say something along these lines that the eternal word, God, takes upon three different forms. Number one, God takes upon the form of Jesus, or not in terms of modalism, which is a heresy, but God comes into this world as Jesus and this is what Karl Barth is describing. Again, John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. And then verse 14, it says, And the Word dwelt among us. And we saw who Jesus was. That Again, we didn't, the writers of it, that we received their documents in the Scripture, and we re- believe the report. Therefore, we believe that Jesus came into this world. Uh, so God comes to us through Jesus. Secondly, we see that God comes to us through Scripture. It's what Karl Barth would say. It's one of the reasons why Isaiah chapter 40 is actually quoted here. He says, for the word of the Lord remains forever. He says, all flesh is like grass, all the glory of the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fails. The point that I think that the psalmist or that Isaiah is actually saying here is that number one, humanity is totally frail. Human beings, it's one of the reasons why I would say that 
trusting in human capacity or human capability is nothing but a setup for frailty. Humanism is frailty. It can't ultimately save. Humanistic ideas. It's one of the reasons why I think Nietzsche was absolutely correct when he described God is dead. The whole idea that he's saying is that if we as a culture and society remove God or treat society or treat the world as if God does not exist, then what his proposition was that, then we as human beings are left with a canvas to decide what is right and what is wrong. In other words, we have no external idea coming in beyond human beings. The, the point is, is that God stepped into this world. God spoke into this world. We have scripture. So the scripture is. And what scripture, in short, will consistently tell us is that human beings are frail, and yet the word of the Lord endures forever. God is not only durable, but sustainable. You want to build your life on something? That when your life breaks, your heart doesn't have to? Build your life on God. It's durable and sustainable. And then lastly, Karl Barth describes it not only comes through Jesus, the scripture, but also what he describes as the preaching, where he says, this word is the good news which has been proclaimed to you, as he says at the very end of chapter one. And this is the good news that has been preached to you. Um, you can think of this as gospeling, preaching, proclaiming the good news. You guys, when we gather, this is what we need more than anything. What we don't need are more laws, rules, and regulations. We get this consistently in our culture around us. That's what our culture is consistently shoving at us. You might say that society and culture at large does not have a social code. Totally has a social code, for sure. In fact, it's so much of a social code that if you violate the social code, or if you opt out of the social code, or you break the social code, guess what? There's no forgiveness for you other than to be canceled. And once it happens, there's no re-entry back into the table, into the fold of humanity. You're marked. You're a pariah. That's where the kingdom of God is different. When you fail, there's an opportunity for forgiveness. When you sin, there's a, plat there's a path or a platform for you to have your life remade. This is what the gospel is, that God has stepped into this world, taken upon himself our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, the consequences of all that we have accumulated and accrued in the form of his death. And then he, in turn, gives us life. This is why it's such good news. Peter ultimately encountered this good news of God. In fact, when Peter uses this language in terms of agape and phileo, uh, I think probably what he's doing is he's looking at his own life. If you remember when Peter sinned against Jesus and he denied Jesus. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, Jesus seeks Peter out. Remember that moment when Peter's on the seashore, Jesus sits down with him and he says, Peter, do you love me? And asks him this three times. Jesus does this interplay between those uh, Greek words. He says, Peter, do you, do you phileo me? Do you have brotherly love and affection towards me? And then Jesus finally finishes, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Are you devoted to me? And it's interesting that Peter's using the same language that no doubt came from his experience with Jesus. 
And I would suggest this to you, that before you go out trying to be a loving person, my question for you is, have you encountered this love yourself? Have you been awakened by this love? Has God stepped into your world and radically reoriented it? Have you encountered the forgiveness? Have you experienced that moment where you have violated and broken and you've been aware of the fact that you've not done what God has wanted you to do or you've not lived up to that standard? But then at that moment you realize, God, I need your help. And at that moment, you've, it's all been intercepted by God's welcome and love and acceptance. Man, when that happens, you become a different person. There's no more room for you to go around looking at other people with condescension. That's incongruent to the gospel. There's no more room for you to go around canceling people because they don't live up according to your standard. That's totally in violation. It's a distortion of the good news that you've been shown. This is why I'm suggesting to you one of the most amazing movements of the corporate culture of Jesus' people is this love that has been shown and this love that we get to show. Which leads me to the final thing I'm done. That this beauty, this love, ultimately is beauty. And it's this beauty that will ultimately change the world. This actually comes from a book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which defines this image of, of love. Love, ultimately, or beauty, ultimately, will change the world. If you think of it this way, we as human beings, we're captivated by beauty. There's something that happens when we are in the presence of something mind-blowingly beautiful, it shuts us up for a brief moment before we grab out our phones and take a photo of it. But just for that little, little, little moment, we're captivated by the, by the presence of beauty. And what I'm suggesting to you that this is what the gospel is. This is what the love of God is. It's beauty that will ultimately change us. Francis Schaeffer would go on to also say this in his book. He says, Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. If you know anything about Francis Schaeffer, you know that he was a big advocate for beauty. If you know anything about orthodoxy, Greek orthodoxy, Russian orthodoxy, any form of orthodoxy, Ethiopian orthodoxy, the big idea is love equals beauty. Beauty equals what we need more than anything. The Western church is primarily focused upon truth, which is good. We need truth. But we also need beauty. Because when we encounter beauty, beauty stops us. The love of God is beauty. So as we close, I'm going to invite you all to stand. We're going to respond. We actually uh, don't have communion for you today. Um, We will have it next week. Um, So how about we all stand? We're going to respond just by lifting up our voices. And what I want to encourage you to do as we sing... Ask yourself, are there places in your life right now that are maybe defined by ugliness or defined by unforgiveness or brokenness or sin? I want to invite you to think about the God that loves you and to receive the invitation that he offers to you, to come to him, to bring to him your guilt, your sin, your shame, your brokenness, your ugliness, and ask him to make you new and whole. This is what the gospel is all about. This beauty will change you. This beauty is what changed Peter. 
this beauty is what Peter is saying, as you live out the gospel, will change the world around you. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for your great love. And right now, Lord, we want to respond to you with open hands to just bring to you, God, who we are in some total and just say, God, receive us. Thank you that in Jesus, you receive us. So we lay our lives down at your feet right now in response to who you are and what you've done.